Man, thank you guys so much. I don't know if y'all caught this a while, not a while ago. I don't even think Lizzie did, but she spoke prophetically this morning. Y'all now have a band name, Out of the Ordinary. That's got a couple of layers of depth to it too, so just let y'all marinate in that for a little bit. Good morning, everybody. How y'all doing? Good. Bethany makes fun of me because all pastors say something like that, and uh, it's just in my brain now. Every time I say it, I'm like, darn, but here we are. I am who I am. Sorry. Not sorry. Um, man, we've got a lot of good stuff going on this morning. Thank you so much for our testimonies, and I can't wait to tie those in. Both of those today were perfect um, for the messages that the Lord has for us. And, and Lizzie, thank you for that prayer, just kind of wrapping that uh, moment up together. Today we're going to talk about our weaknesses, and that's not always something that's fun to do, but I think that the fact that we've recognized during worship that we know we all have weaknesses and that we need the Lord's help with that brings us uh, way into the right space in the right mind frame for today. Um, so last week we um, we talked about uh, a lot of different things, and, and I'll just be honest. Last week was one of those services where it didn't go the way I expected it to, and I'm so glad that that happened out that way. It was just a beautiful morning of worship and and uh, getting to hear the Lord speak. I was telling somebody. Um, Evan Norwood, which is one of the, our pastors over at TGP Colleen. I don't know if you guys have ever met Evan. Uh, he's one of four right now that are kind of co-pastoring that church, and so it's a really neat dynamic that they have there. Um, they're starting the abiding cycle uh, last week, and so he was doing the introduction, and so I listened to his message and was encouraging him after the fact, and, and, uh, and I told him that uh, it's good to go back and listen to yourself, because sometimes you make mistakes, and it's good to, to recognize that, and so in the spirit of, a, of talking about our own weaknesses, I often make, um, we'll call them verbal blunders. I'll say things in the moment, and then later I go back and listen to it and be like, that was totally off. That was not the right thing. Like a good example, uh, I got two from last week. One of them, I was like, look at this Hebrew word on the screen that was very clearly Greek. And I know that it's Greek, (laughs) but we're talking about the book of Hebrews, and so my brain just, it makes weird connections sometimes. So we all have weaknesses. I also pointed to Solomon's temple and was like, this is the temple that was there when Jesus was alive. It was not. That one was destroyed. So your pastor's weak. Just so we all understand that going in from the beginning. Um, I am dependent. It's just like you are on the Holy Spirit. So last week we moved into uh, chapter five of the book of Hebrews, or we ended chapter four, moving into, the, into chapter five. And I talked about how we're going to be in for the next five chapters or so, with the exception of a little snippet that we'll get to next week. Um, these next five chapters are talking about Jesus as our high priest. And so I titled today's message, um, Perfect, Good, and Meh. Um, if you don't know what meh means, some, a kid in here can describe it later for you. Um, but uh, we're going to look at a comparison of priests today. We're going to look at Jesus, we're going to look at Melchizedek, and then we're also going to look at the priest of Levi, specifically Aaron. Last week, um, we, we talked about how God's desire for us is to, to learn about who we are, who he is, and our place in the redemptive story that is currently happening in our lives, that we're in the middle of that process, that it's, that process will not end until Jesus returns and all of the things in, that happen at the end happen. But we're still in the middle of that redemptive story. And so today we're going to learn some important parts about that story. Um, specifically, we're going to talk more about why we need a priest, what that means for us as a people of God. Because uh, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, that thinking about a priest is not something that we talk about often. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word pastor and I hear the word priest, two very different images come to mind, 
right? And, and a lot of that is because we're raised in the South and there's a lot of Catholicism around us. But we want to really dive in this next five chapters and talk about what, a, what biblical priesthood looks like, why that's important to us as believers today, and what that means for us. And so to get us started off on the right foot today, I want us to watch a video from the Bible Project. I love their stuff. Because uh, I want to make sure that we all understand the meaning and the significance behind the idea of sacrifice and atonement. That's not something that we participate regularly in American culture. Sacrifice is not a thing like animal sacrifice specifically is not something that we do. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and it was talking about how um, some professors that were talking about this idea were saying that in every other culture, especially in in um, Middle Eastern cultures, the idea of sacrifice is something that's super common to them. So they read this text and they get so much more meaning out of it because that's something that they have experienced. So we're going to watch this video today because we need to understand this basic foundational truth of what it means to be in the body of Christ, that sacrifices are necessary. And we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit um, and how holding on to that idea, understanding our need for sacrifice is going to play such a huge role in our understanding of our need for a priest and our understand for, understanding for a Savior. So, Luke, if you would, go ahead and cue that up, and we'll watch it, and then I'll come back up. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Yeah, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life. And the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. 
So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. And this is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper, which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source. The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. Really, um, I enjoy the way they take all of scripture and bring it kind of into one field of view and let you see the story from the beginning. And there's a couple of significant things I want to point out from, from that video. And the first is that there is evil that's in the world and that evil originates in you and I. I think that is so good for us to understand. It's not a thing we like to talk about, 
But that's the reality of it, that it's initiated and then manifested in the world through us. And so when we look at the world and we feel that sense of, of heartbreak or disgust or however that comes out in you at different times, we need to understand that that same evilness is inside of each of us. All of us have that same sin problem. And, and the second thing is that justice does not happen if the offender of the law is not dealt with. That's significant. I love that they point out that why didn't God just simply get rid of evil? Well, it, because that meant he would have to just get rid of us as well. If, if, a, if a person breaks the law and then is simply forgiven and there's no consequences, that's not justice. In fact, we would call that corruption. And obviously that's not who God is. And so we have to deal with the problem of sin. The third thing is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that every person needs. He became the final sacrifice that was needed for our atonement. I heard a commentator say it this way recently, that atonement means that it's at one that we are brought and we are made at one with the Lord because of what Jesus has done. And that his sacrificing himself made us one with God. Again, remember we've talked about for a couple of years that all of this has been because God's trying to restore the relationship that sin broke originally in the garden. So now we see that we need a priest. The priests are the people that make those sacrifices on the behalf of the Jewish people. And now for us as Jesus, as our priest, he is the one that makes the sacrifice for us to get for us the forgiveness for the atonement that we need. Okay, and so this is why the author of Hebrews is going to spend so much time over the next few chapters talking about Jesus being the high priest. So we're going to start today with a statement about the nature of a high priest. That is how they come to hold that position and how Christ is similar yet greater than the priest that, that are going to be brought up today. So let's read together chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I know this is a lot bigger chunk than we typically deal with, but I felt like the Lord wanted us to kind of handle all this at one time. So read this with me, starting verse 1. For every high priest is taken from among men, is appointed in matters pertaining to God for the people, to, both offer, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he is also clothed with weakness. Because of this, he must make an offering for his own sins as well as for the people. No one takes this honor on himself. Instead, a person is called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but God who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. Also in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I want to start today by saying there's a lot to talk about in this passage. And so um, I was sharing with somebody earlier that this is one of those Sundays where I have to really put my blinders on and narrow in and focus in on just the things the Lord wants to talk about. So I've studied this passage out a lot this week, and I want to tell you about all the things that I learned, but nobody has time or desire to hear all of that in one sitting. Um, but I listened to several really, really good podcasts, specifically about priesthood and Melchizedek. And if you'd like to do a deep dive, I can certainly share those links with you. Um, and we're going to talk more about Melchizedek in chapter seven. So we are going to mention him today. But if that piques your interest, like it does most people when they're studying the book of Hebrews, 
don't worry, we're going we're gonna to talk more about him as we get to chapter 7, okay? A um, couple of things I want to point out. No one chooses to be a high priest. They're appointed by God. And I think that is significant for us to understand. I know the author of Hebrews certainly is making that point clear to the church. Aaron was appointed, and then the family of Levi was appointed by God. And then Jesus was appointed by God as a high priest. And, and I think that it's important that we understand that he's not from the priest of Levi and that there's significance in that. I love that um, the children's story today kind of brought this idea in. Specifically, what the commentators point to is Moses. Aaron was Moses' older brother. And the only reason that Aaron was brought into that whole scenario is because of Moses' sin. If you remember when we studied the book of Hebrews, when God, when Moses saw the burning bush and God began to speak to Moses about the things that he would do, what did Moses come back with? A bunch of excuses. Well, God, I'm not a good speaker. Well, God, what about this? Well, God, what about this? And then finally, and you can go back in, in Genesis and, or in Exodus and read this. Finally, Moses just says, God, I don't want to do it. And God says, okay, fine. Take your brother Aaron with you and he can help you. And so that royal or that priesthood started with sin. Aaron was not God's intended plan. Aaron was a result of Moses' sin. And so that line of priesthood comes out of what? Sin, not out of perfection, which is what God's intent was. As a high priest, we also see that Jesus appealed to God on behalf of the people. And when we read the New Testament, the priests appear to be self-serving. Think about all the stories, the interactions you see between Jesus and the Pharisees. It doesn't appear as you read that, and, and reality is the same. They weren't so concerned with the people as they were with themselves. We talked about that last week, that the priests were so zealous that they murdered Jesus in order to preserve their own traditions, their own idea about who God was to be and how he was going to save him. And then I love that it says in the end of that, that Jesus learned obedience through his suffering with temptation. And that's significant for us because we're going to talk today about us walking in obedience again. Well, I know we've talked about that a lot, but the Lord keeps bringing it out, okay? But the last thing I want to point out from this passage is that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So Jesus, Jesus learned obedience through his suffering, and that says, and, he was, and after he was made perfect. So that means that Jesus was made perfect as he learned obedience, as he went through the same things that we did. And then as a result of that, Jesus makes a way, an atonement for all of us who obey. There's significance there. This last point is of great importance for us. And, and I felt like God is leading us to discuss that. I know you're probably thinking, well, we've talked a lot about obedience. Okay. And I loved Lizzie, your testimony this morning about God, I don't want to do this. And God saying, do it. And you go, okay, I'm going to do this out of obedience because you've called me to it. I want us to take a scriptural journey today because I want to show you the depth of the issue and why the author is bringing up Melchizedek. He's important to the story, even though we don't know a lot about him. And it's going to inform us about our own hearts today. So I want to ask, we're going to read a lot of scripture. We're going to take a little journey. I want to ask you to stay plugged in with me today because it's going to reveal for us a couple of things. Number one, it's going to reveal our personal need for Jesus as our high priest. And it's also going to reveal probably some areas in your life where you're struggling with obedience. I know I have those areas in my life. So we're, we're all on this journey together. We're going to start today in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at the story of Abram. 
Okay, this is the story of, well, of a lot of things, but we're going to start in chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. It says, as the Lord said to Abram, and remember, Abram is, becomes Abraham. You know, Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. Okay, all right, we're all on the same page. All right, so the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay? So God comes to Abraham, Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. Okay? So here's what I want you to do. In order to receive this blessing, here's what I want you to do. He says it in verse 1. He said, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay? So God is saying, do this thing. Leave your relatives, and leave your family land. Go to this place that I'm showing you, and I'm going to bless you more than I blessed anybody else. Okay? Look at verse 4. What does Abraham do? So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when they left for Haran. So the one thing that God told Abram to do, he didn't do. He brought his nephew Lot with him. And look what happens. Let's read a little further down. Chapter 13, verse 5 through 9. It says, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites uh, were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please Let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you separate from me? If you go left, I will go right. If you go right, I will go left. Imagine that. God told him to go by himself. He brings his family with him and the land can't support him. It's almost like God knew that was coming. God promised to make him a great nation, but because he didn't obey, there wasn't enough for all the people that he brought with him. But let's continue on. Look at verse 14 through 17. It says, After Lot separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are, look north and south and east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. This is the promised land, just to connect the dots. God is telling Abram, Okay, now, finally, you've done the thing that I said to do. Look north, look south, look east, look west. Everything you can see, I'm giving to you and to your family. In verse 16, he says, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and its width, and I will give it to you. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Finally, Abram is getting the promise that God, the blessing that God said he was going to get. He finally did what the Lord told him to do. And the Lord says, look, as far as you can go, okay, this is your land. Now I want you to go walk it. Do a walkabout. Look at all the land, okay? So he tells him to go walk the whole land. Look at verse 18. It says, so Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre and Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Wait, hold on. God said, go walk all this way and all this way, and all this way, and all this way. Luke, put that map up there for me. I hope y'all can see this. Do you see the green area on here? That's the promise. Land. That's the land of Canaan. Do you see the little bitty orange line on there? 
That's where he went. God said, go all the way up there, all the way down there, all the way to the sea, all the way to the other sea. All of that's going to be yours. And look how far he went. Just a little, just a little hip, hop and a skip down the road. So here's what happens next. And this story is fascinating. We don't have time to read it all today. If you have a minute this week, go read Genesis chapter 14, okay? Because there's this incredible story of these nine kings from all the area north uh, east of this that you cannot see on that map. These nine kings go to war with one another. There's five on one side and four on the other, and they fight, okay? And like, I'm talking about like battles, battles. These whole kingdoms, five kingdoms here, four kingdoms here, huge armies, they go to war, okay? Four kingdoms against God, five, and the four kingdoms win. They loot the five, and in the process of that, they capture Lot and his family who are living in Sodom. And the servants come and they tell Abram, hey, these, these four kingdoms have captured Lot and his family. So Moses gathers up 318 trained men, okay? And he pursues these four kingdoms. And I don't have the map up here, but I just want you to get a visual for what the Lord does through this. From where he's at, at the bottom of that little orange line at Hebron, he pursues them way north of what we can see on this map. And he rescues Lot and his family, 318 men from four kingdoms. And then he returns home. God ends up sending all of those kings to war and having Lot's family kidnapped in order to get Abram to do what God told him to do. Look at verse 17 through 20 in Genesis chapter 14. It says, so Abram returned from defeating, I don't even know how to say that, <laughs> Shedel or Mir, and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shavuot Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine as a, he was a priest to the God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here's this mysterious Melchizedek. After finally Abram again disobeyed God, didn't do what he told him to do. God pushed him into it. He went and did the thing. Melchizedek blesses him. I want to point out that the blessing of God always follows obedience. The blessing of God always follows obedience. Finally, Abram does what God had told him to do, and he's blessed. And the author of Hebrews points us back to this story and references Melchizedek because he is like Jesus. Did you, did you notice in our video this morning that we watched? How did, he, how did the authors of that video, how did they reference Melchizedek? They said he was two things. He was a king and he was a servant like Jesus, a king and a servant. Jesus is our king, and he's also our priest. He tells his people that he is their source of salvation if they what? This is important. If they obey him. The blessing of God always follows obedience. We cannot overplay. We cannot talk about obedience too much. It's too important Last week I told you that I was so excited. Remember, I was still on the edge of here. And I said, have you ever stood on the top of a, a really tall cliff and you kind of put your toes over the edge and all of those feelings that come? And I told you, I felt like that's 
where we are as a church right now, that we're right on the cusp of God doing something incredible. I, I have those feelings like I'm standing on the edge and I just can't wait. And I'll be honest, when I saw Lizzie's announcement this week, immediately my mind starts running because I'm thinking about if God gives her that position, the opportunities that she's going to have to do godly works in her community, in our communities. But none of that happens if we don't obey, if we don't sit before the Lord in the morning and say, God, I don't really want to do this, but I need you to speak. And then when he does, you obey it. And I want to be, I want to be real clear about something. When I talk about obedience, I'm not asking you to make your life look like mine. I'm asking you to ask God what he is calling you to do in your life, and you do that. God has given us all very specific callings, very different ministries for very specific reasons. So when we're talking about obedience, when I stand before you, and first of all, when I'm talking about us needing to be obedient, I'm number one in that, okay? But I want all of us to understand that when I say we need to obey the Lord, it's not that God has spoken out something in your life that I now know about that I, you don't know that I know about and I'm preaching to you only. It's, it's us looking at Scripture and realizing that Jesus is saying, do you love me? Obey me. Do the thing I've asked you to do. Because if all of us will follow God's lead, we're going to find ourselves on the receiving end of God's great goodness. Today, when Maggie shared her testimony, she said she came downstairs and she saw the boots and the blow-up uh, raft and the spade, and she thought, wow, it looks like I'm going on an adventure. You know what I thought? You're on an adventure. Those things were in your car because God has made your life an adventure. And often we're in the middle of life and because we don't see it from the outside like Maggie did today, all we see is mud and all we see is a raft that won't inflate and all we see is the ice that's going to cause us to slip and fall. What God is asking us to do is to trust Him. Because one day, we're going we're gonna to finally be obedient to the things He's called us to do. And we're going to have a moment where we step back and we go, whoa, look at what God's been doing all this time. And I didn't see it because of the mud. I didn't see it because of the ice. I didn't see it because the raft wouldn't inflate. I'm not picking on Maggie. It was just perfect for today. Beginning of this message, I told you that we're going to see our need for Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is our high priest, and, is, and, and it is only because of his work in our lives that we are able to experience God's blessing. It's only because of him. It's because he has made atonement for our sins. He has made the path, like we talked about last week, to walk boldly to the throne and to say, Jesus, I know I'm not worthy of you, but you love me, and I want to do what you're calling me to do. God gives us a direction, just like he did Abram. And often we don't fully obey, or, or we say, okay, God, I hear you saying to do this thing, but I'm going to do it this way. And we don't quite get there. I mean, Abram, he traveled, just not everywhere God told him to go, right? But how often do we do that, Right? I, I, I'm picking on my kids for just a minute, but often we'll be like, clean the kitchen. And they'll be like, we're done. I'm like, what about that pile of dirty dishes next to the sink? 
Oh, you, you wanted me to do those too? And we can all laugh at that because we've all been there, right? Oh, oh God, when you told me to do that, you meant all of it? Oh. I want to leave us with this thought today. Jesus showed us what this loving and obeying relationship looked like, right? Remember, we've talked about this so much that he says, I don't do anything on my own, but I do only what the Father tells me to do. Look with me at John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 15 through 21. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. This world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but, they, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And on that day, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Obedience is significant. The blessing of God that we've been talking about is his presence and his activity in our lives. And the fact that a perfect, holy God loved us enough not just to send Jesus to be our atonement. That's a miracle and an incredible in and of itself. But he goes even beyond that and says, I want to be active in your life. I want to do things for you, with you, because I love you. We experience that only through obedience. We talk about that all the time in the abiding cycle. We hear God's voice. We do what he says. And then what happens? We see God-exclusive activity. And it causes us to fall deeper in love with him. And we start the cycle right back over. We go, God, that was incredible. What you got next? Today, we looked at these three different priests. We look at Aaron, who was brought into the Levitical priesthood because of the sin of Moses and could never be perfect. And we see this mysterious, unknown king priest, Melchizedek, who shows up after Abram has finally obeyed the Lord, and he blesses him. And then, of course, we see Jesus, our high priest, our king and our servant, who's come to us and said, I love you. I've already made atonement for your sins. Hear me. Obey my commands and do what I say. Let's pray. Father, I'm so encouraged and, and challenged by your word for us today. Father, I know the struggles in my own life, and I know that um, so often the things, the things that you're calling me to do are not easy. Sometimes they're not fun. So, Father, I ask my, for myself and I ask for my brothers and sisters here with us today. Father, as you speak into our lives, as you give us direction, God, I ask that we wouldn't be fearful. That we would take the little bit of trust that we have, we would place it in you. And we would pursue you and obey what you're calling us to do. And the result of that is not only would we see you, but the people in our lives would get to see you as well. Father, give us the courage to walk boldly into the throne room, to, to bow before you, to seek your face, to seek your desires. God, reveal yourself to us this week. 
You've been so faithful to us. God, give us the strength to be faithful in return, to come to you daily, to seek your guidance, and to obey your commands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.